0: It is finished. These are the last words of Jesus Christ. Really, it's the last word of Jesus Christ. In the Greek language, it is "to tetelestai, one word. It means to make an end, to complete, to pay in full. Now, we had a beautiful day at the bunny run, and uh, we started at the finished line. Now, we had more runners than ever before. They were lined up, people who wanted to actually run in the front, people who wanted to just cruise in the back, strollers in the middle, dogs in the middle, right? And everybody's lined up, and right above them it says, finished. Because we're trying to make a point. Our life starts where Jesus' life finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, that is the starting line of the Christian life. Now the problem is, most people don't get to the finish line of Jesus. Most people don't get that far in the Bible. Okay, let's talk about the Bible here for a second tonight. The Bible is not a book. And we got one of our ushers bringing a Bible out here. Let's give this guy a round of applause here. Thank you, ushers, for all you do. Okay, this is what a Bible really looks like. Not a book, but a collection of books. Okay? In the English translation of the Bible, it is 66 books. So the, the Bible is confusing to us in America today. It's not being taught in our schools. Sometimes it's barely being taught in our churches, and people don't know how to think about the Bible. When you go to the table of contents in your Bible, it's not telling you chapters. It's telling you books, and because I think one ec- ec- economically, it's cheaper to just buy one binding. And then two, I don't know if you've tried to carry all of this around, but if you're looking for weights, you could do reps and get cut pretty quick with this right here. Okay, so this is like what they did—the ESV. And this—if you counted them, this isn't even 66 because some of the smaller books they still put together. But you can see it's not just one book in the Bible; it's more like one shelf. Of your bookcase is is more like what the Bible really is, and maybe you're like, well, I don't read books, I don't I don't have a library. What do you mean bookcase? You know, well, let's talk digitally. Imagine a uh, you were streaming a TV show and the season had sixty six episodes. Okay, imagine you're listening to an album and it has sixty six different tracks. That's what the Bible is. It's way more complicated. Than one book. And so people start reading the Bible like they would read any other book. And when you start reading a book, usually you start in the beginning, unless it's the math book and the answers are in the end of the book, right? You you start in the you start in the beginning. And so people are like, great, let's kick this thing off. This will be great. Let's start in Genesis, right? Genesis is 50 chapters long, right? And then you get to Exodus, which is full of the ancient law of Moses, right? And by the time you get to the third book, Leviticus, you're done pretty much, right? (laughs) Who's ever quit a Bible reading program in Leviticus? Let's just get honest right here. I'm not joking. This is facts, all right? Uh, People, this is as far as they get. That's 40 books before Jesus is going to say it is finished, all right? Uh, They're not even close, okay? So one thing that I do, when people tell me, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to start in the Old Testament. I'm like, I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. It's 66 different books. You can read any of them. I say, hey, let's just go. Now, look, this is all the Old Testament, all right? And so Christians today who want to act like, ah, we don't need the Old Testament, take a look, everybody. Most of it's Old Testament, all right? Well, then you get to the New Testament, so what I try to do is I just try to hand somebody one book, and maybe you've seen some of the little copies of the Gospel of John we have, because I want him to get to the finish line. I think what Jesus says, his last words, is like the most important thing that a human being could, could hear, that a man died, and he said it is finished, and for to fully understand what that means, it'll change your entire life. So I'm like, hey, just read this book, This was written by one of the disciples of Jesus, a very close disciple, a disciple whom Jesus loved. He was an eyewitness to the whole thing, the miracles, the teachings, the death, the resurrection. He wrote it down so you could see who Jesus is so that you would believe in him and have eternal life. Read this book. Most people that I have given the Gospel of John to read, this book's got 21 chapters. They don't make it to chapter 19. So most people never get they never get to, the, to the, where Jesus says it is finished. Even if they read one book, they don't get there in the whole book. That's why recently, I don't know if you heard this, in one of our baptisms, there was a lady who came to our church, and she started getting inspired to learn the Bible by coming to church, and her family said, hey, for the new year, let's all read the Bible together. Did you hear about this? Were you at that service where she shared her testimony? She read the Bible in 45 days, okay? She read it in 45 days. That's like more than a book a day, everybody. 45 days, she read the Bible. When I heard that, I almost fell out of my chair when she told me that. I was like, God bless you, God bless your family, your extended family, your pets, even your cats. God bless them, you know? I mean, I was just like, why isn't everybody doing that? These are the words of eternal life. This is God revealing himself to us. It was, that's not usually how it goes, okay? So I don't want you to miss The finish line. So we're not going to make you read the whole thing. We're not even going to make you read the whole book. We're just jumping straight to it is finished. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to John 19, verses 28 to 30. Everybody, open your Bible up. John 19, verses 28 to 30. And I want to read for you the context here of where Jesus says his last word, a word that I hope has changed your life. And if it hasn't before tonight, it will change your life tonight. But let's start in verse 28 of John 19. It's right there at the top of page 906. If you got one of our Bibles here, John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to Tetelestai. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, the, the writer here, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the three closest disciples to Jesus, he, when he, he saw Jesus here on the cross, in fact, go back to verse 26, just go back a couple of verses before, and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John must have been kind of close to each other, right there by the cross of Jesus, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, so he sees Mary, his mother, and John, the disciple, right there close to each other. Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, home, took her to his own home. So, this guy was so close with our Lord Jesus Christ. He was so close, literally, physically, that when Jesus is up there with his nails, with nails in his hands, holding him up there to those pieces of wood, nails in his feet, that's the only thing keeping him up there on the cross are the nails piercing through his flesh. And while he's bleeding out, while he's suffering, while he's in agony there on the cross, he sees his mom and he sees John. And he says, hey, John, take care of her like she's your mom. Hey, mom, here's your son. I mean, this is the guy, the guy who wrote this is the guy that Jesus knew so well that he asked him to look after his mom when he was dying. So John was close to Jesus in the sense that they really loved one another. He was also close to Jesus and that he could hear what Jesus was saying on the cross when he died. And maybe you've heard that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. That's what it says in some of the other gospel accounts of Jesus dying. Well, John knows what that loud cry was, that last word of Jesus, to tell us die. It is finished. I want to go through, through with you here tonight, three things Jesus finished on the cross, okay? Let's look at three things Jesus finished on the cross. When he says, it's done. We've come to the end. It's completed, paid in full. When Jesus says that, what is he referring to? Okay, What does it mean it is finished? Three different levels that you and I want to understand what Jesus is saying on. Now, the first one we see here in verse 28. We see in the context. As John writes how all around this one statement, And if you look back at verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, so there's there's what he says, Jesus is thinking it is finished. That's why he says it is finished. He said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So here's John now getting us into the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, remember what was happening when Jesus was up there on the cross. It's time to really make sure that you and I think deeply about the pain and the suffering, the mockery and the mistreatment that Jesus Christ went through. And I hope you will come back on Good Friday as we have a time set aside just to feel the heaviness of the burden of our sin on Jesus on that tree. And just to know that when they crucified someone, they didn't just want to kill them. They wanted to torture them on their way to death. That's why they did crucifixion. Because by, by those nails in his hands and feet, Jesus had to keep lifting himself up as he would just kind of push his back up against the cross, his back that had been whipped open and torn up with this flesh exposed on his back, rubbing up against the rugged wood of the cross. He would have to push himself up like that on this little thing they had for his feet. He would push himself up to keep trying to get breath, to keep breathing. Otherwise, his body would just sink into himself and he would die by asphyxiation. He would run out of breath. I mean, this is just a painful, tortuous way for someone to be executed. And people are mocking him while he's going through it. They're saying, hey, you saved others. You can't save yourself. They're saying things like, Hey, you said destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Too bad you can't get down from the cross. They're mocking Jesus while they're mistreating him while he's suffering and dying. And what is Jesus thinking about at that time? Well, he's thinking about fulfilling Scripture. And he says, I thirst. And he says this to fulfill a prophecy as they come and bring him sour wine up to his lips. So one of the things it says clearly here that was finished, that was on the mind of Jesus when he's on there on the cross is all of the prophecies that are fulfilled by the way that he died. So let's get that down for number one. Prophecy fulfilled is one of the things that Jesus finished when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, a prophecy is something that we are way underselling in the Christian church today. Prophecy is one, not only just is it fascinating for us Bible nerds to study, prophecy is one of the compelling reasons that every single man, woman, and child on planet Earth should believe that the collection of books in the Bible is the Word of God. Because God, through some of these books, tells you what He's going to do. And then in some of the later books, He actually does it. And there's hundreds of years in between when God first said He was going to do it and when He actually does it, and there's no way that anyone can disprove the prophecies that are in the scripture. And so hopefully when we went through the book of Daniel as a church, was anybody fascinated by the prophecies in the book of Daniel? Anybody, any Bible nerds here like me pumped up about prophecy? Do we have anybody? A few of you guys got excited. Here's what we need. We need less Bible nerds and more Bible teachers. That's what we need. If you're fired up about prophecy, everybody you know should know that. If you think this is amazing, that God said he was going to do something before he did it, you should tell every single person that you know. That's how exciting prophecy is. We are not using prophecy the way that we should be, the way that God shows us in the Scripture. God says, hey, who else can tell you the end from the beginning? Who else from ancient times can tell you the things that are yet to come? Prophecy is a way that God's saying, let me show you that I wrote this book. Do I have your attention now? John, definitely. When he wrote this down, and I don't know how many times he must have played that scene in his mind over and over. When he was there next to Mary, watching Jesus die on the cross, who knows how many times he replayed every little detail. But one of the things that John wants you to see in the way that he wrote John 19 is like there's a prophecy being fulfilled, there's a prophecy being fulfilled, there's a prophecy being fulfilled. Like he is overwhelmed that all of this down to these little details has all been described for us hundreds of years beforehand in the Old Testament. And he wants you to see that. Now, a lot of people, they, they minimize prophecy. They act like it's not that big a deal. Like, they think prophecy works like this, how it works here in verse 28. Jesus says, I thirst. Somebody brings him some sour wine. He gets a little drink right before he, he dies. Boom, prophecy fulfilled. Oh, Jesus knows what the prophecy is. He just does something to fulfill the prophecy. That's not really that impressive, okay? If that's what you think prophecy is, you, you're not really seeing it, okay? One of the things that Jesus said when he said, destroy this temple, and on the third day, I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about the physical building of the temple there in Jerusalem. What was he talking about? His body. Now, that's a pretty impressive prophecy. Hey, kill me. Destroy me. Destroy this body that I've got right here. And on the third day, I'll rise again. That's the kind of prophecy we're talking about. Jesus said over and over, let me tell you guys what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and over to all the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the scribes, and they're going to arrest me, they're going to kill me, I'm going to suffer, and then on the third day I will be raised. He kept saying that to his disciples over and over. Jesus called his shots. He said this was going to happen before it ever did. He knew he was going to die like this. He knew he was going to rise from the dead. But all of the prophecies aren't even fulfilled by the actions of Jesus Christ himself. Go back here and look what the Roman soldiers do earlier in the text. Look at verse 23. See, Roman soldiers, they would not have known the Old Testament. They weren't like the Jews who would have been familiar with the word of God, who would have been able to appreciate prophecies being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. The Roman soldiers, they knew nothing about it. They had no context. And look what happens here in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So we got four guys trying to figure out how to divide up the clothes of the man that is being killed there. Four parts, one per part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So here's these soldiers dividing up the, the guy who's dying. Hey, look, what are we going to do with his clothes, right? Beg- which just kind of shows that Jesus is up there dying in this exposed and vulnerable way, not, not clothed there as he's dying out on the tree and they're like hey you take this you take this but this garment it's all one piece and so they're going to cast lots for it and then John says this was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that's a that's a quote right there from psalm 22 going all the way back to this description. And if you go read Psalm 22, can you write down Psalm 22 right now if you're taking notes? Go read it. Go read it. That was written a 1,000 years beforehand by King David. Go read Psalm 22. And you tell me, does that sound like Jesus dying on the cross in vivid detail, yet written a 1,000 years before it happens? It's amazing. And the soldiers did these things. You see what John's trying to tell you? Hey, I was there. I was at the foot of the cross. I was next to the mother of Jesus Christ. I, I saw Jesus die. I heard what he said. And you know what I realized? Those Roman soldiers over there messing with his clothes, they're fulfilling ancient prophecy, thousand years old. That's not all that they do. Look, after, look afterwards here as well. Um, look, look here in uh, verse 32. Look at, look at verse 32. Actually, start with me in verse 31, right after our text. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So because the Sabbath is coming... Because it's a Friday there when Jesus is dying, and sundown is the beginning of the new day, and Sabbath is the day of rest. We need these guys to die a little bit quicker. So, if you break their legs, they can't keep lifting themselves up, they can't keep getting breath, so they'll die a little bit quicker. So, hey, let's go break those legs, let's get this over with. So, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, so they didn't break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side to see if he was really dead, and at once there came out blood and water, which is a miraculous thing that blood and water are flowing out of the side. Here you would expect blood, but what's with the water? And, and the water is a miracle. John says, hey, I was there. I bore witness. My testimony is true. I know I'm telling the truth that you also may believe when they pierced the side of Jesus Christ, water came out of him. It was an amazing thing for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so not one of his bones will be broken. That goes back all the way to how an animal had to be sacrificed, this pure, spotless lamb, how it had to be sacrificed. That goes all the way back to Exodus 12. And then that phrase there, they will look on him whom they pierced. Uh, That's coming there from Zechariah 12.10. So he's saying, wow, these Roman soldiers, by what they're doing with Jesus, clothes, with his dead body, they're even fulfilling ancient prophecies. Like, they couldn't have manipulated this. This wasn't under their control. They didn't even know these prophecies. And here I am watching them all happen right in front of my eyes. God is doing exactly what he said he's going to do as he kills his one and only son, Jesus Christ. God called it. See, these prophecies prove who Jesus really is. Because all these prophecies from the Old Testament... And I hope you've read the Old Testament. I hope you've put in the time and work because that's how you're really going to be able to appreciate the glory that is the person of Jesus Christ because you get little bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament that there's this Holy One of God. There's this one who's going to be anointed in the same way that they anointed their prophets and their priests and their kings. There was going to come one who was going to be all prophet, priest, and king, the only one in the entire history of God's people who would fulfill all of those offices. And he was like this chosen one, this holy one that God was going to send. And when God sent this one, everything was finally going to be made right for God's people. And you start to get these little clues these little prophetic hints coming along the way and you start to look for this Messiah or we call him the Christ, which means the holy and anointed one. And now John's saying, wow, when I was there and I saw this and I saw that and I saw this and I it was like, wow, this is really happening right in front of my eyes. I'm seeing what God said. He is the one. That's what he wants you to believe about Jesus. He is the one. The holy and anointed one. Now, he's saying the bones aren't broken. The side is pierced. There's water flowing out. And he's giving us some specific passages that are being fulfilled. He's like, hey, let me give you the direct reference from the Old Testament that refers to this. So that's one way that prophecy works. It's like specific predictions that you can read in one verse and then they happen in another verse. Another way that prophecy works is a type, okay? So it doesn't exactly say this is going to happen, but it gives us a picture of what is going to happen. Go back to verse 29. And when Jesus says, I thirst, okay, you're thinking, well, that's just Jesus manipulating that they'll give him something to drink to fulfill a prophecy. That's no big deal. Yes, but wait a minute. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine and they put it on a what kind of a branch does it say there? hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. Did Jesus ask them to bring the drink on a hyssop branch? No, he did not. Who's doing that? These four soldiers. The four soldiers who are fulfilling all kinds of prophecy and not even knowing about it, right? Hyssop branch. Like, if you know the Old Testament, if you were a Jew at this time and you're reading what John's writing here, or if you've just read through the Old Testament, you might remember a hyssop branch because it's shown up a few critical times throughout the Old Testament. First time we really see the hyssop branch in action is at this thing called Passover. Anybody heard of Passover before? Remember the Israelites are in Egypt in the time of Moses and Pharaoh There's been 10 plagues, and the 10th plague is the worst one where the angel of the Lord is going to come through and kill everybody's firstborn son. I don't know who your firstborn son is, or maybe like me, you are a firstborn son, but we are all going to die unless you kill this sacrifice, this perfect, spotless sacrifice lamb and what you have to do it's very clear you can go and read the instructions in the book of exodus that they had to get this lamb and they had to let the lamb live there in their house with their family just long enough to get emotionally attached to the lamb and then they had to kill it and they had to get the blood of the lamb this was the only way that the firstborn son was going to be saved in that house is if you killed the lamb as described and then you got the blood of the lamb when it was killed and you had to put the blood over the doorpost of the house and only when the spotless lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put over the doorpost of the house would the angel of the Lord pass over that house and not kill the firstborn son and it said specifically when you spread the blood over the doorpost do it with what kind of branch? A hyssop branch. By the blood of the lamb applied with the hyssop branch, the firstborn sons would be spared. And now here we see that the lamb is being sacrificed and they're bringing a hyssop branch up to his mouth and the one and only son of God is dying to pay the penalty for you and me. This is God showing off to get your attention. When David was so deep in his sin, and he was crying out and begging God for mercy, begging God for forgiveness, David says in Psalm 51, uh, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a symbol of this purification, this this purification really by blood. If you were a leper in in Leviticus 14, if you were a leper in Israel, you were considered unclean, you were a social outcast, you had to go live away from everybody else, and if you were cured from the disease of leprosy, this vicious skin disease, if you were cured and they were going to bring you back into society, you're no longer contagious, you're no longer unclean, well they would have to come everywhere you were with a hyssop branch with blood on it so that you could be declared clean and brought back into to the society. David says, hey, God, if you'll just wash me, if you'll just cleanse me, if I could just get the hyssop over me, that sacrifice of the pure lamb, that bloodshed on my account, if the hyssop branch could be applied to me, I could be forgiven of my sin. And Jesus says, I thirst, so they'll bring him something to drink, but they touch a hyssop branch to the mouth of Jesus Christ with a sponge. And I would imagine as they're pushing that hyssop branch up on his face, the pure blood of the lamb coming out of his head in that crown of thorns is flowing down on his face onto the branch. The perfect, beautiful symbol of God trying to tell you, I knew I was going to do this so long ago. I'm so in control. I'm doing this exactly like I said. And if you want to be clean, If you want to be purified, if you want to be spared on the day of judgment, can you pay attention to what I'm doing right now? You need to see the prophecy fulfilled. And when Jesus says it is finished, he's saying that because he did exactly what God said he was going to do. And John, he's trying to write it to you in a way that you would see. This is amazing. Not only is Jesus dying, but it's working on this other level where God has said all of these details throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And let me just tell you, I was there. I could hear him. I could see it. And it was like detail, detail, de- All the prophecies, they were all fulfilled. That's what he wants you to see when Jesus says, it is finished. Now turn with me to John 13 because there's a second thing that we want to see and John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he also made it clear he wasn't the only disciple whom Jesus loved. And it says here on page 900, John 13, verse 1, and this was the night before Jesus was killed. This is what we would think of as Thursday night this week, and maybe on Thursday night, if you're if you're if you're enjoying Passion Week and you want to get ready for Good Friday and Easter, Resurrection Sunday, maybe on Thursday night, you might want to get your family around and read John 13 to 17 and hear everything Jesus said on at this last supper with his disciples on this night before he died. And here's how John starts the whole story of the last night of Jesus Christ on planet earth before he dies, now before the feast of the Passover. So hold on on time out we just got to talk about that for a minute okay so jesus is clearly the fulfillment of the passover lamb the pure and spotless sacrifice we see the hyssop branch being applied to his mouth but do you also know that the passion week took place on the feast of passover when they would remember that god brought them out of egypt that's what it's saying here now before the feast of the passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. This is it. This is what we've been all building up to. This is what we've been building up to for 43 books right here. And then it says this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the, what does it say there? To the end, to the finish. Okay, that's the same, same root Greek word there. Where it says end here, that's what Jesus is saying, it is finished, it is ended, it is done, it is fulfilled, it is completed, paid in full. Hey, Jesus loved all of his people in the world, he loved them to the end, to the maximum, to the most possible love. One thing Jesus finished when he died for your soul on the cross is he established this perfect love that he has for you. Let's get this down for point number two. You are fully loved. That's what we need to see happen. When he said it is finished, one thing that you should never doubt, one thing that you should never dismiss is the fact that Jesus Christ loves you. And he has proven that. He loves you. He has He has shed his own blood and given his own life to love your soul. You are fully loved. So that's one thing John makes very clear. He loved them to the end, and then just a few chapters later, it's going to say, it is ended, it is done, it is finished. Look at John 15. Just turn a page if you're in one of our books. John 15, verse 12. Love is one of the major themes that Jesus had to teach his disciples with on this night before he died. He made it very clear that the distinguishing characteristic of Christian people is that you're going to love one another, and here's how you're going to love one another. Just as I have loved you. And he gave them an example. There in John 13, when he put on the kind of the robe there or or he kind of put on the, the, the thing of a servant where he went in and got that towel and washed the disciples feet where he put himself in the form of a servant. And he served all these guys. They were going to have this nice meal uh, to, to remember the Passover there. They were, we were going we to recline and eat together. And here's Jesus washing their feet. That was a practical example of his love for them. But he's clearly building to something bigger in his love. Look what he says, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. And here's how we're supposed to love one another. As I have loved you. How, well, here's a big hint about how he's going to love us. Verse 13 greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends and you are my friends if you do what I command you no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends and he was telling them over and over what he was going to do that the way That Jesus Christ was going to love these disciples the way that Jesus Christ loves you? Well, there's no other greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. When it comes to love, one of the things we have a real problem with as human beings is we have expectations, we have have an idea in our mind about how we should be loved. And the problem uh, that you might not be experiencing the full love of Jesus Christ is your expectations of what love should look like are different than the reality of what love does look like. Jesus is going to teach you something about love. He's going to tell you there might be many different kinds of love, from loving a cheeseburger to loving your spouse, right? From loving the weather or loving your your pet to loving one of the precious children that God has given you in your life. We might use the word love in a lot of different ways, but greater love has no one than this than when someone will willingly give their life and lay it down for someone who is their friend, for someone they care about. That's what love really is. So maybe you're still waiting for some kind of love that's going to look a certain way, make you feel a certain way, meet your expectations. This is what love really looks like is Jesus Christ up there bleeding out, giving his life so that he could call you friend. That's what love looks like. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 where it makes it very clear Hopefully these are precious verses to you here in Romans chapter 5 verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6 says this is what love really is and we all need to be taught by it here. Uh, we, we can't make up our own definition of love. It is more than a feeling. It is more than an experience. It is more than a physical sensation or an emotional attachment. You want to know what love is? Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Well, Maybe we we know some people who might be willing to die for someone. But, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know what the definition of love is? It's Jesus dying on the cross for you, a sinner, so you could be his friend. That's what love is. And we've got to believe that. I mean, here's the tragic reality that's going on in some of our hearts here tonight, that's going on with so many people that you and I know. They're feeling empty. They're searching for love. They're looking for it in all of the wrong places. When Jesus Christ has already done everything you could possibly do to love them to the full, to the maximum, to the end. And they don't understand it. They don't see it. It reminds me a lot of our kids. I, I would hope that you love your kids. That's a, that's a natural kind of love that God gives us as parents to love our kids. Does anybody here tonight love, love your children? Does anybody want to say amen to that? That was not really a hearty amen for the kids <laughs> here in the room, right? Now, I was, I was driving just this week. I was driving in my car, and I've got kids. I've got front seat kids and back seat kids, if you know what that means, right? And one of my back seat kids... We were having this conversation, and all of a sudden, one of my backseat kids says something. I wish there was, like, video, audio. I wish it was recorded, like, from 360 degrees. He says, Dad, you are a generous father who loves his children. That's what he said to me. <laughs> now, that's not usually the kind of stuff you get from the backseat. Can I get an amen from anybody on that, right? Right? Because, see, my kids, their idea of, of dad loving them, is like are we going to go get ice cream right now dad right dad are we going to go get a new lego to do today dad right i know lately there's been this this outbreak of slime in the elementary schools dad can we go get some slime to play with today right see that's their expectation right They're not thinking about the roof on the house. They're not thinking about uh, the mortgage or rent being paid. They're not thinking about all these things that dad does for them, especially that he teaches them the Bible and the gospel of Jesus, that he disciplines them and corrects them, teaching them right from wrong and what God has said we should do and what God has said we should not do. See, the expectation of love is radically different than what real love really is. And you might have that same problem. Because the way that you needed to be loved was you got a messed up soul. And there's nothing you could do to fix it. And this sin, it has destroyed what God made to be good has been just ruined by sin. It has ruined who you are. It has corrupted your very nature. So you don't just need good emotional experiences or happy feelings or a place to stay or a family to love you. You need your soul to be saved and that is the way that Jesus has fully loved you. And you gotta see that. If you're looking for something, let me just tell you right now, there is nothing more that Jesus could have done than he did for you on that cross when he said, it is finished. What more does Jesus need to do to prove to you he loves you than sacrifice his own body and shed his own blood? That is the definition of love. There is no greater love than that. This is what love is. That Jesus Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. People, people sometimes say, hey, you guys talk about sin too much at Compass Bible Church. Why are you guys always talking about sin? Why can't you guys just talk about this? Is what they Somebody came and challenged me. They said, you guys are always talking about sin. You need to talk about the love of God. I was like, hey, that sounds great. Let's talk all about the love of God. How did God love us? Seriously, go home and try to write a definition of the love of God using Bible verses without including in that definition that he loved us when he died for us and he died for our... You can't talk about love without talking about sin. There's, there's no such thing. You're making up a different definition of love than what the Bible says. Love is perfect on the cross of Jesus Christ. He perfectly loves you. There is no way that you could be more loved than you are as you sit here right now. It is finished. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. Look what, look what John said. John actually wrote later on, not only did he write down the gospel of Jesus Christ, his eyewitness experience, but he also wrote this letter, 1 John, about what the Christian life is going to look like, the difference, that the, the, the power of Jesus if you really know Jesus through his death and resurrection, if you really have this eternal life through believing in Jesus, well, he writes 1 John to give you a picture of what the Christian life really looks like. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, I just want you to dive right in to 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. And I think here, here's John giving us his definition of the love of God. And here's what he says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this... The love of God was made manifest among us. Here's how the love of God was revealed. I saw it with my eyes. This is what it looked like. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our... What's the key word there? Where do we get to? Okay. Here's the definition of love, John's saying. This is how the love of God is made known to you. Okay, Maybe you want God to love you in some different way than He's actually loved you, but this is how God actually loves you. He sent Jesus, His one and only Son. And, And Jesus came so that we might live. Jesus is going to die and give His life so that you might have life. And then in verse 10, hey, this didn't start from us. It's not like we loved God first and then He loved us back. No, it started with Him. He loved us first. And the way He loved us, by sending His Son. And then there's this word, propitiation, okay? is an important word for us to every single person who's a Christian. You need to understand propitiation. You could write down, if you want to write down a definition of propitiation, it means atoning sacrifice. That's one way you could say it. Sometimes it's even translated that way. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. Something had to be done because of your sin. See, we don't understand. All of us have been marred by sin. The entire world that we live in is fallen because of sin. There are Satan and the demons out there trying to sway the whole world to sin. We have never seen anything outside of being tainted by sin. And we don't understand how much it has messed all of us up. But God understands it. He sees it clearly for what it is. And all of that sin must be judged. See, this is one of the things that God's trying to get through to us over these first 39 books of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus Christ is that people keep sinning over and over, and there has to be a sacrifice. Blood has to be shed. You can't just be like, oh, I'm sorry I sinned, and God be like, hey, it's cool, and move on. That's not how God works. When sin happens, the wages of sin is... Something has to die when sin happens. Might sound harsh down here, sounds holy in heaven. That's the way it works up there. You just don't know it because you haven't seen it yet. Something's got to die when you sin. And Jesus, God sent his one and only son, whom he perfectly loved in heaven, and he sent him down to earth to give you the definition of perfect love because he is the only one by Jesus Christ living for 33 years a perfect life, obeying all of God's commands, never once giving into temptation to sin. He is righteous. He has righteous blood flowing through through his body. And when he's up there sacrificing that body, when his blood is being poured out, that is the sacrifice that God needed. Jesus had to die. Otherwise, you would have to die for your sin. That's what love looks like. And if you want to make up your own definition of love, you will always be disappointed in your soul because the only thing that can make you whole is that Jesus loved you by dying for your sin. You've got to believe this. There's nothing else to believe. When I mean, we live in this world right now that is telling everybody to love themselves, to you be you, You do whatever you wanna do. You know what we're seeing in our world right now? Suicide is on the rise. Depression is on the increase. Because loving yourself is not real love. Jesus loved you, and he loved you despite you. He loved you when you were a sinner. That's when he died for you. See, all of us, every single one of us is gonna find out that Jesus loved us After he loved us. That's how it is for all of us. Born at the time that we've been born. We will hear about the love of Jesus after it already happened. And we will hear about this story. We'll hear about Good Friday. I mean, most people on planet Earth these days are going to hear about Jesus dying on the cross. And if people aren't going to hear it, we should go and tell them. Because that's the good news. That's the definition of love. And when you hear that, do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been loved to the max, to the full, to the completion? That there's nothing more that Jesus could do? It is done. His love for you has been fulfilled. He loved all of his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. That's the second thing we could look at when he says it is finished. Love has been accomplished. Perfect love that casts out any fear of judgment because Jesus already took that judgment for you. That's what he did. But I think there's still something else that he's, that he's saying there in John 19. Uh, and, and In fact, let's look at 1 John here. Let's look at, let's look at 1 John. Uh, you're still there. Go to chapter 1, verse 7. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Okay, now this is, to tell Telestai, one of the ways we know this word specifically was used is that when they were in the market, when they were bartering, when they were doing their transactions, they would have a receipt. They would have some kind of payment. And one of the things that they would write or stamp when something was paid in full is they would stamp the word tetelestai on receipt. So we know that one of the ways this word tetelestai was used was in a transaction as a way of saying paid in full. And so look what it says here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from how much sin does it say there all sin all sin just a little line that he drops there in verse 7 here's something we can know If if you're living a new life in the light hey if you have fellowship with other believers If you're one of God's people, here's the only way you could ever be one of God's people is you've been cleansed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Now he's going to get into that more. That's now going to kick off this thought about how you and I should think about sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news to anybody right there? Hey, if you sin, confess it to the Lord and he is faithful. He will do what he has promised. He will forgive you of your sin and he will cleanse you from that sin. Promise right there. Verse 10, but If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's an interesting thing about Christian people. Sincerely Christian people, people who really know Jesus, they will be honest about their sin. People who say they don't have sin, that might sound like a godly person, they're actually a liar is what the Bible says. You tell me you're perfect, you tell me you have no sin, I don't believe you, the Bible says that's not true. You're deceiving yourself perhaps. No, real Christians, they'll deal honestly with the sin in their life. They'll confess it, and we have this belief that when we confess our sins, when we agree with God about our sin, we own up to it. We say, hey, I did it, and it was wrong, and I shouldn't have done it, and I'm not going to do it again. I'm turning from it. We are forgiven for that sin, and actually there's this work that God does through the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from sin. And then he says this, the thought continues into chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. Here's John writing something to people he really cares about. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. I want you to live out that new life of Jesus where you don't have to sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, we have a defender with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When you sin and you're feeling guilty, you're feeling ashamed, maybe you can even hear the lies of the enemy coming to you saying you're not worthy of the love of God, as if the love of God ever had to do with your worthiness. Hey, you're not really a, a Christian. Look at you. You sinned that one more time. You did that thing. And here comes all these doubts. Here comes all these thoughts. Let me just tell all my brothers and sisters, okay? When your own self accuses you, when the enemy comes to accuse you, Jesus Christ stands there to defend you in front of God in heaven. And he says, when he talks about you, he says, paid in full. Already bought. Already purchased already paid for that person they're mine i bought their soul that's what he's saying paid in full he's saying he bought your soul he has paid for every sin you've done in the past every sin you might be experiencing in the present even the sins that you will commit in the future if you are one of those who has been cleansed by the blood of jesus he has paid it all can i get an amen from anybody on this John's saying, hey, in Christ, in his blood, and this is where we're going to go in the done series. Once we get a clear vision of what Jesus really has done for us, there's no way our life could ever be the same. There's no way we could keep living in sin. There's no way we could not have this transformation, this change. Once you see really what Jesus has done, It's a powerful effect in your life. Hey, I'm writing this to encourage you guys so you won't sin. But when you do sin, here's something I want you to know. Jesus Christ is an advocate for you. He is righteous, and he sacrificed his righteous body. He shed his pure blood, and he will stand there and say, no, this is one of mine, and I've already done everything that needs to be done to pay for their sin." That's an amazing thought. I mean, think about how much sin you've done. Think about how many times you've thought something you shouldn't have thought, said something you shouldn't have said. I wonder, what's the punishment like for that? What's the judgment look like for that? We know people get judged according to what they have done. What kind of judgment would you experience if you had to face reckoning for everything that you've done? And then to think that Jesus took all of that for you. It's an amazing thing. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's just a few pages over to the left. 1 Peter chapter 1. There was a payment that has been made. There's a transaction that has been taking place. That what's happening there on the cross, one of the things we know Jesus cried out is he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on that cross, Jesus, along with all the physical pain, all the mockery, all the agony that he's going through there in that moment, more than I can try to even imagine, something's happening that we can't describe, that we can't see, where the Father is pouring out his righteous wrath for sin, the judgment that all of us in Christ, the judgment that all of us deserve outside of Christ is now being experienced by Christ. That's why he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's experiencing the judgment of God for our sin. That's what's happening there, and and it says here, hey, this is what it took to buy your soul. This is what it took to purchase your salvation. It says in First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen, knowing that you were ransomed. Okay, your your soul had to be ransomed. You had to be paid for. Your sin had amassed this huge debt before a holy God. And you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, from the sin that's been passed down from generation to generation. You were purchased not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb going all the way back to Moses, going all the way back to David, going all the way back to the prophets, like the lamb that we've been talking about for hundreds of years. The sacrifice of love. That's what purchased you. It was like a lamb without blemish or spot. There was only one thing that had the value that could pay for your sin. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ. And he was up there. He could have got down. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. Don't forget, when they came to arrest Jesus, he said, I am he. And what happened to all the mob that came to arrest him? What happened to him? They fell down. Let's not not deceive ourselves. Let's not not think wrongly about this. Jesus was on the cross because he wanted to be there. And there was one reason that matters more to you than anything else in this life, that he wanted to be there, and it was you. It was your soul that he paid for. And it's like Jesus is putting his stamp on the receipt for the transaction of your soul. And it's like he's shouting at you through the pages of Scripture. And he's shouting to you right now. And he's saying, you have been paid in full. I mean, how would you feel if you came to church tonight and I told you that everything you needed for the rest of your life, all of your bills had already been paid for? Would you walk out of here a little bit taller than you came in? Would you walk out of here like you're rich? You know how rich people walk like this? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like life's good. Everything's free because it's all been paid for. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means everything's already been done. The whole to-do list of what you have to accomplish in life, check. Every debt that you would possibly have to figure out how to pay between you and God, paid in full. I got of all people, you are the most blessed people right here, the people that Jesus loved and paid for your sin. You've got everything you're ever going to need as you sit here right now tonight. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Father, we come to you, and the only reason we can come to you is because of your son Jesus Christ and what he did for us on that cross. And God, I think a lot of times we act like we already know this when we don't know this well enough at all. God, I pray that there would be people in this room that would walk out of here truly believing that they are perfectly loved to the maximum capacity that there is no more love they could experience than what Jesus has already done when he loved them to the end and that their hearts would be full. God, I pray that there would be brothers and sisters here that would walk out of here feeling so clean, so pure, knowing that all of that filthy sin, the stain that they could never rub out no matter how hard they tried, By their own good works, we could never make the guilt of that sin go away. And then Jesus, he washes it all away with his blood and he purchases us. He buys our soul for all of eternity. We now belong to you through your son, Jesus Christ. We've been paid for. We've been loved. God, I pray that we would believe this. How could we act like we already know this? How could we ever get over it? How could we ever come to the end of what it means to be perfectly loved and fully paid for? God, help us to see that our life is possible to live in a new way because of what Jesus Christ has already done. And God, I just pray for those who don't know this love for those who right now are going to carry around the burden of sin on their way to go do some more sin, that tonight would be the night they lay that burden down. That tonight would be the night they would stop feeling empty on the inside and they would cry out and they would cry out to you, Father, and they would say, I want your love. I want my sin to be paid for on that cross. I believe in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you so much for your son, that you would send your one and only son and offer him up as a spotless lamb to pay for our souls with his blood. God, thank you for Jesus Christ and how he said, it is finished.